Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Human Rights Foundation's Dissidents and Dictators podcast. My name is Casey Michelle, and with my indomitable co-host, Alicia Maldonado, we have a phenomenal episode for you today, talking about everything from Taiwan and the role Taiwan continues to play in the broader fight against dictatorship, as well as the brutal history of Russian colonialism, including a chapter of Russian colonization that many people are not familiar with, but that may tell us plenty about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Hi, Casey. Good morning, Alicia. How are you today? I'm hanging in. How about you? Oh, you know, it's another beautiful day in paradise. I'm so happy to be joining you to talk about some of these wonderful topics. Now, Alicia, I, I understand that you've been out of the office a little bit over the past few days. Just a wee bit. week or so. You've been traveling. I have indeed. Seeing some of the world, seeing some sights. Where were you? Well, we were in Taiwan, Casey. Taiwan? What were you doing I over there? I and a few of our colleagues went to Taipei for our fourth Oslo Freedom Forum in Taiwan, which is an offshoot of our flagship conference every year in Oslo. So we've done one in Oslo, and we've done one in New York. And so a few of us went over to Taiwan and held another one there, another half-day conference. Now, is this a pun when you say offshoot? I wish I'd thought about that, that's but why, no. That's why I have all the coffee flowing through my that's system. That's right. I have no coffee in my so system. Taiwan is the host for one of Human Rights Foundation's Oslo Freedom That's correct. Forums. How many years has this been going on? Four. This is the fourth year. And this is the first one that you've been to? The first one I've been to. Yes, in, in Taiwan, that is. A place that is so beautiful. I love Taiwan. I love the people of Taiwan. They're a lot of fun. They're very open, and they make you eat a lot of food. Well, there's nothing wrong with eating a lot of food, especially if it's delicious. It's delicious. It's so good, and they want you to eat all of it. Did you have any favorite meals while you were there? I wish I could remember the place, but our colleague Sherry took us to this very authentic um, sort of hole-in-the-wall spot. And when Warrior Kaishi, who was speaking at the event and who is, you know, the number two most wanted out of China after the Tiananmen Square protests, after, you know, for his role in them. Anyway, when, when Warrior Kaishi says, oh, they know what they're doing when you go to a restaurant, you did well, so I'll give that props to Sherry, but uh, really good food. Well, oh, I think you've sold me and my stomach. I'm making it over to Taiwan <laughs> for Oslo Freedom Forum uh, next year. So this is the fourth iteration of mm. Off Taiwan. I guess pulling back a second, you know, there, there are plenty of potential candidates to host these kind of offshoots, as you said, these spinoffs of the Oslo Freedom Forum, which itself has been going on for about 15 years at this point, as the name indicates, is hosted every year in Oslo, uh, in Norway itself. Uh, why Taiwan? Again, of all the places in this broader fight against dictatorship and this broader pushback against authoritarianism and highlighting and elevating the voices that are on the front lines of these fights, uh, uh, why Taiwan? Why has that risen to the fore as the host of one of these uh, off events? Yeah, Uh, well, as you say, on the front lines, they're, you know, what, 100 miles from mainland China? They're living every day, you know, staring down the the barrel of uh, a fight against tyranny. So, and they are so, you know, such a passionate, democratic-loving country, and we're going to call it a country, even though, you know, People's Republic of China do not want us to. Um, not recognized as such. Not recognized as such, but we recognize it as such, and it, as it should be. Um, so they're just out there in, in Asia having this, uh, this fight against a tyrannical regime across the way, 100 mm-hmm. miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they're they're doing their best, and they're they're a small small nation, roughly twenty three million. So, um, you know, a small a small dog against a big up against a big one. Absolutely, but, um, and punching above their weight as well, both locally as well as internationally. That's right. That's right. Geopolitics as well as democratic fights writ large itself. So tell me about the event itself. Tell me about the conference. How long was it? How many people were there? And beyond that, what were some of the highlights for you? Yes, it was great. Okay, so it's a half day conference. Um, you know, of course, Casey, you've been to our other um, forums. So we have all sorts of really cool exhibits and installations um, around the space. You know, you can step on dictators or, you know, paint on their faces or not, things not, like that. I should interject, not quite literally stepping on them. The dictators often Wishful don't actually. Thinking. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, but their images, uh, you yeah. can certainly step, stomp, color, draw, whatever you want to do Give on them. Give them the horns they deserve. Um, so yeah, so that there's that and other little talks, and um, then we have the main stage programming. So we have, of course, um, you know, we had the deputy foreign minister of Taiwan have give opening remarks. Our founder Thor Halverson gave open opening remarks, and you know, he's always so great. And I'm not just saying that because he's our boss. I love listening to him give a talk. The man knows how to give a speech. He absolutely does. Um, always very captivating. Very so. charismatic. Very charismatic. I'm always like, I'm ready to uh, go ahead, sir. I'm listening. Well, I, I guess pulling back a second, you know, this is, and again, we need these kinds of voices. Absolutely. We need this kind of energy, whether it's in Taiwan or elsewhere, as it pertains to pushing back against these dictatorships that are clearly on the march both yep. domestically and internationally as well. Okay, so you get there. It's an interactive yes, uh, yes. day. Half day. It's half not day just you day. sitting in an audience listening to talks. No, there's things you, you can do. There's walk around. around. Yeah. You're meeting people who are, you know, obviously so interested in, in helping with this, you know, push for democratic reforms around the world. So you know that you're in good company. You're in, in like with like-minded people who share the same passions and values that you do. And I think that's one of the really cool things that our conference creates. Um, but also you're up against, you know, rubbing shoulders, I suppose, with these people who are, you know, fighting for their freedoms in their countries. You know, you can run up and talk to, you know, the Tanele Masekos or the Joey Sus in Hong Kong. And that's so cool. Well, I was going to say, I mean, this, even though it's located in Taiwan or even though the Oslo Freedom Forum itself traditionally is located in Oslo, Norway, it's not as if it's attracting and featuring speakers and activists and organizations from any one country. Right. Suffering under any one regime. It is this tether of democratic movement, democratic effort, democratic progress that brings all of these people together. Taiwan may be leading on the fight, but Taiwan off offers the opportunity. And again, no intending any pun with offers right there. <laughs> uh, to bring all these people together, to celebrate their fight, to celebrate their efforts, to celebrate their comrades in arms. Yeah. Pushing for the same goals at the end of the day around the world. Yes. Um and, you know, from Venezuela, we had um, Gustavo Tavar Arroyo there, um, Omar Oshogre from Syria, who's just a vibrant human being. Um, so, yeah, and you get to really amplify those voices. Now, we're, we're, aside from the food, were there any other elements of Taiwan off that stood out to you as something you'll be remembering for years to come? Oh, uh, well, I think just in general, just being there, I, we got to, um, one of my colleagues and one of our speakers, moms, we got to walk around and... Have a have a little moment when there's a little break in in the time that we were there, and, and just walk around and and see some of Taipei and walk into other little restaurants, more food, you know. So it's really about the people you're with in the end. Do you think, Alicia? Let me ask you this. Okay, so it's hosted in Taiwan, a half day event, half day affair. 
uh, bring people from around the world to celebrate democracy, celebrate Taiwan's advancement in terms of democratic principles and democratic freedoms, uh, as well as acting as a leader for other uh, democratic polities or those suffering under authoritarianism writ large. Do you think there are any folks in Beijing that are jealous of how much fun you and your colleagues were having over there? Yeah, I don't think they like it much. Yeah. <laughs> Because we, as we like to say here at HRF, having fun is a revolutionary act. Absolutely it is. And they don't want us having fun. Yeah, so getting to go on, going onto a main stage or being at this event or any of the events that we do and talking about the hu huge human rights issues that we do, but also having a good time while doing so. I don't think that there's anything a dictator would hate more than fun in spite of what they're trying to do. Well, but that's the beauty of living in a democracy at the end of the day, because you can have that kind of fun. However yes. you want to manifest it, however you want to do it, you know, however you want to express it and enjoy it, you can have that fun, which is, again, something that Taiwan illustrates so vividly. Yes, they do. In the region, as well as internationally at this point. Were there any surprises for you in terms of some of the talks, some of the events, some of the folks that were there? Well, you know, um, one of the big things that came out of the conference was... Um, Thor, again, our CEO, was speaking to the legislative yuan a couple days before our event and mentioned back in 2010 in a conference speech that he was supposed to be giving um, that he was asked by the then um, president's foreign ministry to not talk about China in his speech. And so as, as Thor said in this speech that kind of <laughs> just viral in Taiwan while we were there, um, said, of course, the very next thing he did was go back to his hotel and um, made his speech all, all the more about China because you don't tell human rights activists what to do. Um, so that kind of took on a new life while we were there. Um, and so people were very interested to talk about that. And I think it's because they like to hear people bringing up these small injustices um, and then just blasting them. So that was a, an interesting little bit. Well, and these forms of censorship or self-censorship beyond China's borders has gotten great attention, especially here in the United States over the past few years, oh. whether it's celebrities, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's uh, uh, industry after industry. We see these different manifestations of people biting their tongue, holding their tongue, not necessarily being out and out proud CCP supporters, but still being unwilling to publicly criticize what the CCP, what Xi Jinping, what his inner circle are doing in terms of you know, kleptocracy and transnational money laundering, in terms of the concentration camp systems they've built in East Turkestan, in terms of forced labor that is now emerging in places like Tibet, in terms of any number of topics, we see many of those in democracies, mm -hmm. including here in the United States of America, being unwilling to criticize, being unwilling to hold uh, other Western investors, Western uh, polities and politicians feet to the fire. Would you say it's all about the money? I would say that there is certainly an argument to be made that it's certainly not about uh, the belief in the um, uh, vision of the CCP as it exists, mm -hmm. but the belief in the vision of potential investment opportunities and profit margins that they believe the CCP can help provide. Right. And that has been the case for years, and that has been the case in many other countries that are overseen by authoritarian dictatorships, uh, in many cases increasingly tyrannical. Obviously, I'm thinking perhaps most especially of places like Russia, which opened its door to any number of Western investors Western-backed financial arrangements over the past 30 years, all predicated not only on profit margins, but on this kind of airy idea 
that, oh, if we just invest, if we just build up these economic links, if we build up these trade links, they will follow the democratic path. They will follow the democratic model. Whereas now we know we weren't helping them transition to democracy. We were enriching them. That's right. We were providing them more resources, more financial wherewithal to conduct more horrific policies, both domestically as well as, as we've seen, increasingly internationally. And again... Grubby little pause in everything. Grubby little pause in absolutely everything, whether it was self-delusion, whether it was bad faith arguments, what have you. At the end of the day, that might not even necessarily matter so much as there were so, so, so many Western companies, Western investors that looked the other way while their wallets were fattening Mm -hmm. uh, through any kind of ethics or morals uh, or so-called beliefs in progressive policies to the side because they were profiting hand over fist on the backs of, again, outright enslavement and forced labor in places mm-hmm. like China. Yes. The CCP is so good at it, too. They just have such a long view, you know, and uh, a twisted sort of patience to just wear people down. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're masters at that. Well, I think they've learned full well, just as those in Moscow and elsewhere, that anybody and everybody... As a price. That's right. And anybody and everybody, if you're patient enough, can be bought off. So let's bring this back then to your experience in Taiwan. Let's bring this back to some of your work as well mm. in the broader East Asian uh, region. I know we were talking about, off mic, we were talking about Jimmy Lai as well. Um, and for listeners who may not be familiar, let's talk about who Jimmy Lai is and why he's important as it ah. pertains to uh, topics like the CCP's uh, both internal and external pressure campaigns. Yeah, we were talking about Jimmy because I, I got the privilege of meeting Jimmy in Taiwan when I was there in 2019 as part of a delegation. Um, some journalists and there were some maybe politicians. There was like a small, it was a very small group um, back when I was working at the New York Post. And so um, I had the just supreme privilege of getting to meet this man who, uh, you know, a, a media tycoon, Apple Daily founder and publisher, democracy advocate, activist. Um, I don't even know if he would really want to and call a- himself that, but... Apple Daily is a publication based out of where? Hong Kong. It was a Hong Kong newspaper before the CCP shuttered it after the, uh, you know, national security law that they, they right. issued in June 2020. Um, so... Yeah, it, it used to be the biggest pro-democracy newspaper on the island, and um, I don't even think you can call it an island, actually. Let me go back. Um, yeah, you, anyway, biggest pro-democracy newspaper, now shuttered. Uh, Jimmy lies in prison, has been for three years, and, you know, he's he's just really vocal, you know, ha- has been his whole life, fleeing from China as a stowaway on a boat, mainland China, as a 13-year-old, and and creating a fashion empire first, and, and then giving that up after the CCP went after him, because he didn't want his people to lose their to lose their work, um, and then created another empire, that being in media, and they just did not, the CCP just didn't like it, of course, um, so they found a way to arrest him, he's a 74-year-old man, I think, 74 or 75, um, in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. And that is such an encapsulation of what the CCP has done to Hong Kong writ large. Mm, yep. So many protesters that emerged so bravely over the past few years to try to retain some semblance of democracy mm-hmm. in Hong Kong itself. We have seen the jailings. We have seen the exiles. We have seen the clampdown and the crackdown. Brutal in so many fashions, not just against Jimmy, but against so many of his compatriots who are just trying to retain the bare minimum of democracy. And they were promised it, too. Well, you know, right. when, when Britain handed it back over. Omar, do you know what the, uh, the biggest 
1989, you know, at the biggest protest gathering in 1989 while the Berlin Wall was being toppled, while communist regimes were collapsing all across Eastern Europe. You know what the biggest democratic protest was? Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. Omar's our faithful producer, by the way. Thanks for, thanks for putting up with my inane questions, Omar. <laughs> Appreciate it. So they're just trying to hold on to what they were promised um, by the, you know, two countries, it's, you know, two systems. But no, they want, China wants just the one system. Um, and they've done a pretty effective job, I think, in shutting down Hong Kong's freedoms. But people still fighting for them. And meanwhile, those in Taiwan, those in Taipei, can see exactly what the CCP has done to Hong Kong. I have to imagine... They have a front row seat. They are looking at this as a clear lesson for what will happen if the CCP gains an inch. Yeah, and, and they also have the daily reminder or near-daily reminders with flyovers in the, in the street, um, military exercises, just, you know, China flexing its its muscles, saying, look what we can do. Anytime we want, we can make this choice. Um, so they, they really have to you know, band together and, and get all the support they can do. Again, which is why it's so important to have things like Taiwan off to bring other activists, other pro-democracy voices around the world to Taiwan to see what the fight on the ground looks like. It's one thing for you and I to be talking in, in New York City, you know, in a lovely boardroom, uh, looking out over the Statue, Statue of, of Liberty. Liberty. Yeah. But it's another thing to be on the ground, to be threatened by this day in and day out, to see your life, to see your, your countrymen's lives, to see your compatriots and your children's futures on the line threatened by these imperial colonizing tyrannical regimes that's right i just i cannot imagine what that is to, to live like that day in day out the kind of bravery that that takes i agree i agree so we just got to keep giving them all the support we can especially as china tries to strip away all the support from taiwan as much as it can so they don't have a lot of diplomatic allies anymore china just keeps going after them with more money these smaller nations so yeah it was a it was a good trip Maybe you'll get to go next next time. Next I would time love to. Mind. I would love for you and I to go back to that restaurant you mentioned, the little hole in the wall. Yeah, so I'll have to ask Sherry. I can see it in my mind's eye, but it's over a couple of streets and around. And, you know. Well, it's one thing to see it in your mind's eye. It's another thing to <laughs> taste it on your tongue. You're going to go home and rub your belly afterward. That's right. That You've good. never been to Taiwan then? You've never been to, have you been to Asia? Yes. Where have you been? I've been to Vietnam. I've been to Thailand. I've been, I did my honeymoon in Indonesia. Ooh. And I had a wonderful time there. Yeah, so you've been more Asian countries than I have. No, I, I, I um, yes, I wasn't expecting to talk about this. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, yes, I've been to, I've been to Thailand. I've been to uh, Vietnam. I have, I have lived in uh, Kazakhstan. I have worked in Kyrgyzstan. I did my honeymoon in Indonesia um, for a little bit in Bali, but, but as well in, uh, out in the sticks in, in East Java. And that's how I knew the woman that I'd married was the right one for me because we were in the middle of nowhere looking at birds, uh, as I am wont <laughs> to do. And we don't have to talk about birds too long, but there was certainly a moment when we were waking up at, uh, you know, four in the morning, uh, in order for our birding adventure to, uh, to begin. And my dear sweet wife went over to the toilet, opened it, and there was a cockroach <gasps> sitting in there. And, uh, you know, if she didn't divorce me at that point, uh, thankfully, I'm not sure she ever will. I'll, you know, don't I think give she's too pretty many awesome. Ideas. Um, but, yes, I have been to, uh, to Asia and, and uh, certainly seen what the, the fight on the ground looks like in many of those countries. I just well. need to see more of it, and I'd like to see more of it. There's plenty of it. You know, speaking of imperialist powers, Casey, you have a piece out in Politico. 
Russia's slaughter of indigenous people in Alaska tells us something important about Ukraine. Tell us about the peace casing. How did you come up with this topic? Yeah, that's a uh, great question. Uh, Alicia, thanks for uh, thanks for plugging it. And I, um, uh, uh, you know, this is this is a story that I think a lot of folks are kind of generally broadly familiar with. I think a lot of folks are aware that Alaska was originally colonized by Russia, where where the the, the Brits and the French and the Spanish and the Portuguese colonized so much of the rest of the Americas. Uh, the Russians were the ones in Alaska before they eventually sold it to the Americans in the 1860s. And I think, you know, kind of speaking on behalf of a lot of Americans, we're kind of generally familiar with that idea. We generally know that the U.S. bought Alaska from, uh, from Russia itself. But again, I don't think a lot of folks are aware of what the Russians actually did to the native, to the indigenous populations in Alaska. I mean, there's been this broad conversation over the past few years, especially in places like the United States, about the histories and the legacies of European colonization, European imperialism, and all the kind of crimes therein, and the legacies beyond that, and how that, again, affects things, inflects things, um, like geopolitical relations, certainly like race relations, but even beyond that, the kind of broader uh, conversations and contours of democracy writ large. Whereas... The realities and the legacies in Alaska, especially as it pertains to Russian colonization, that is almost entirely ignored in these conversations. And again, especially among Americans, those in, in, in North America as well. So what I wanted to do with this piece was really kind of excavate this history and look at how it was that these Russian colonizers, all on behalf of a very distant czar, were in many ways... No different, no better, no worse mm-hmm. than these other European imperial powers doing much the same in the Americas as well as elsewhere globally in Africa and South Asia, Southeast Asia, so on and so forth. And so what I wanted to do with this piece was look at what the Russians were doing on the ground to those populations that were there first mm-hmm. and that experienced the full brunt of Russian colonization, European colonization in Alaska, and beyond that, why Russia was doing that, and then at its broadest sense, what that can actually tell us uh, about uh, what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine. Give us a little taste of that. Well, so the little taste is unfortunately um, a a, a horrible little taste because it is the very same story, similar story, to what we saw other European powers and other empires do elsewhere in the Americas or in uh, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. The broader story of European imperialism is so similar Mm -hmm. to what we saw the Russians doing in Alaska, even though, again, that has been ignored for uh, so many years and to such great lengths. So, for instance, what we do know is that when the Russians came in 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 the 1740s, what they immediately began doing was enslaving local populations, decimating local populations of Alaska natives, especially the Aleut Nation, which I think a lot of folks may be familiar with from the Aleutian Islands in uh, southwestern Alaska. They were taking children hostage. They were forcing uh, all of the men um, uh, of these uh, local populations to go out and cultivate furs, uh, you know, killing otters and and seals and so on and so forth, um, uh, uh, to ship back to Russia itself to extract all of this local wealth and strip Alaska of all of this wealth for the betterment, for the enrichment of uh, the czarist regime back in Russia uh, itself. And if they didn't do that, if these local populations did not do that, there was horrific violence that resulted. Massacre upon massacre, much of it, certainly as I argued in the piece, veering directly into genocide, um, targeting women, targeting children, uh, often with the Russians themselves not suffering any casualties whatsoever. There was one massacre 
in particular that I think is worth mentioning, again, because a lot of folks have never heard of it. I'd never mm-hmm. heard of it before mm-hmm. putting this piece together. Uh, and it was uh, in the 17, uh, sorry, in the 18th century, it was at a place called Refuge Rock on uh, Kodiak Island, which is one of the biggest islands in the United States. And it was uh, Russian trappers, Russian troops, Russian colonizers forcing um, members of the Alutik nation in southern Alaska onto this one rock where they just opened fire on these people. And imagine, you know, you are with your family, you're with your children, you know, and you are deciding, you know, to, to jump 10 stories off of this rock into the water because that's a better way for you to die than right. waiting for these Russian colonizers to come in. And again, it bears repeating. This is no better, no worse than what other imperial powers were doing. But this is what happened in Alaska for decades. This is what Russian colonizers were doing for decades before they offloaded, before they sold Alaska to the United States of America. And we're seeing that again, you kind of argue, in, in Ukraine or... So this is the argument of the piece. For years, for decades, so many in democracies, so many in the West, including the United States, failed to see or maybe even failed to remember that Russia was part of the broader imperial project in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, that Russia was as much of a colonizing power as imperial Britain, imperial France, imperial uh, Spain, Portugal, so on and so forth, and that it had colonies. I think, and this is a far broader conversation, but the Soviet period really blinded a lot of folks to the fact that Moscow oversaw a colonial empire, including in North America, to say nothing of other now former Soviet republics, places like Kazakhstan or Georgia or Belarus, these former Russian colonies, most especially in places like Ukraine. Because again, this is the kind of the core argument of this. It's not just that Russia is, Russia was and continues to be a colonizing power, but that so many people forgot that, so many people were blinded to that, that when Russia expanded its invasion of Ukraine in 2022, so many people were shocked by that when they really shouldn't have been because it is the same themes, it's the same myths, it's the same policies that the Russians used Mm -hmm. in Alaska to target local populations that they are using in Ukraine to target Ukrainians to try to uh, uh, rope Ukraine back into this Russian embrace uh, of a colonial relationship between uh, 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 Ukraine and Russia, between Kiev and Moscow, that is part of a far broader imperial project that Putin is overseeing in Moscow. Yeah, it's a good piece. Uh, You know, history just repeats itself. Russia keeps proving it over and over again. And yet it feels like we haven't learned a lesson yet, though. No, we haven't. And unfortunately, and again, especially for Americans, because this is such a part of the American story that has been overlooked for so long, what took place in Alaska. It is right there. It is right available for all of us. All we had to do was look. And I certainly hope more folks will look, will read this article, uh, as well as plenty of other excellent historians that have focused on this topic to better familiarize themselves with what Moscow is is under Putin, what Moscow wants under Putin. And again, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere as well, because Putin will not stop with Ukraine. Putin will not stop Mm -hmm. with bringing Ukraine, as he has said, to its knees and part uh, back into the Russian embrace. And beyond that, what Russia has done already elsewhere to other colonies that it still considers part of the Russian Federation itself, places like Chechnya, but also uh, uh, places like Tatarstan or Buryatia that are still um, uh, republics within the Russian Federation itself. I mean, again, reminding ourselves, remembering that Russia is as much of a European imperial power as it ever was, as the other imperial powers were, and that was seen most especially in places like Alaska, which is part of the United States of America, which deserves as much as anywhere else to be part of that American story, and which beyond that has also transitioned into a 
you know, a flourishing democracy right here mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the United States, part of this great American democratic experiment uh, that can serve as a lesson for what decolonization and post-colonial democratic transitions can and should look like. Well, hopefully we'll start learning it and changing our ways. That's exactly right. <laughs> anyway, it's a good piece. You should check it out. It's in Politico. Casey Michelle. Um, a, good, a good history lesson and a good reminder. Thanks, Alicia. You're welcome. So that's it for our episode this week. It's fun one. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We'll be here again next Thursday where you can hear more from myself and my indomitable co-host, Alicia Maldonado. Will you be looking as ridiculous next week as you do um, today? I think the way to phrase that is, will I be looking as <laughs> handsome and dashing as I do today? And the answer is probably not. <laughs> I want you all to know that he is in, he's fully kitted out in a pumpkin suit. That's exactly right. We are recording in a certain time of year. A certain time of year. When I decided it's now or a, never. A blue shirt and a pumpkin suit. Pumpkin jacket, pumpkin tie, pumpkin pants. There's nothing <laughs> fine. It's, it's special, as are you. I'm really grateful for it. Thank you for wearing it. We're having fun. We're having fun. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.